0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore data. So apparently, yesterday was uh, National Podcasters Day, and nobody said anything. Nobody uh, gave me a birthday card, or what do you give for those stupid days anyways? I don't know. Either way, my feelings are hurt, but that's alright. Um, today, what I want to talk about is... Um, I kind of did this last week, but uh, I did a little bit more research because I did a article. I'm very behind, like everything else, on getting articles up for fan 2 fan Network. If you go to fan you can see the article I posted. Um, it says that it was posted by Bosarovsky, because I don't have my own thing, but whatever. Whatever. Either way, it's good for me. Um, kind of forces me to do homework, but it always reminds me of why it is I'm doing podcasts and not writing articles, because... I think the limit or the requirement is 300 words. So what the article I wrote was five things we've learned about the Green Bay Packers through three weeks. So I wrote out the five things and I said, all right, I just got to get enough filler to get 300 words in. Because, you know, that's what kind of a student I was in school. And uh, at the conclusion, I want to say it was 2,000 some odd words. I don't know. I just, I'm just built for podcasts, man. And even that felt incomplete. It's like, I want to say more, but that's plenty. So that's what we're going to look at. If you read the article, I'm sorry. Hopefully I'll give you something else. I don't know. Plus, you know, doesn't take very long to read 2,000 words, so we'll probably have to move on to another topic. Did not have any new uh, patron or Venmo support today, but I do want to say thank you to everybody that did. That was, a very, that was a heck of a stretch, man. I don't think I've ever had that... Uh, level of support for that much time. I really appreciate that. It's still out there if you want to. Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy. Other links are in the description. Uh, I do want to say a special thank you to Mr. Bruce Edmonds. That's at Bruce Edmonds on Twitter. He suddenly got a, uh, a bug and decided he was going to go on a crusade to get more people to subscribe to the podcast, which is funny because yesterday when I was walking around, I was thinking about it the other side of this, where I always say if everybody listening gave a dollar, I could quit my job. I wouldn't have to go to work on Monday. That's maybe true, maybe not, depending on if it's a big day and if we're talking exactly a dollar or the actual average, which I think is closer to $3. But the other side of that is, if every single person found two people... Now, Bruce said on Twitter, one person, which is more than fine. If, if this show doubled because everyone found one person to share this with, that would be massive. But I think if everybody found two people... Just two friends, two family members, two random strangers, two uh, grifters kind of traveling through town, trying to find their center in life, you know? Preferably they're not high on LSD because they probably don't know what you're talking about, but whatever you can do to find two people, that's kind of good enough. So that's another thought for anybody wanting to support the podcast, and since I think I've exhausted the uh, Patreon thing, we'll try that tact for a while. Another way, if you don't want to directly just... Badger them about the podcast, you could just invite them to the group and then let the group do its thing. I also need to do a better job of promoting the podcast in there because I just assume everybody listens. But based on some of the questions and comments and whatnot, it's become pretty clear that a lot of people in there are not listening to the podcast. So, anyways, just a thought again, if you're wanting to help out the podcast and uh, finances are not exactly the best way for you to be able to do that, there's a thought for you. Um, Bruce does have a post up if you want to just jump on that train. Again, that's at Bruce Edmonds. He's just trying to get his post to kind of go out there to tag one person and et cetera, et cetera, that whole Twitter thing. Anyways, um, I hate doing a break after I've done a bunch of preliminary stuff, so we should probably just get started on some of the observations. Well, I was doing a little bit of homework, and I would mentioned a couple things last week about the Packers' offense and how it break breaking records and it was, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, that hasn't entirely changed. Not only is this offense which is point number one that this offense is legit. And and look, Packer fans kind of know it, but I don't know if we really grasp how amazing it is. And I, I did talk about this last week, but it continues. This isn't just a really good start. This isn't just a glimmer of, man, this reminds me of the old days. You know, good old Brett Favre days or, you know, Rogers from 20, you know, I don't know, 2010 to 2014. And what it also isn't, is just a product of the games we've played. Because that's the common refrain from everybody who's who's kind of either casually watching or, of course, division rivals. Well, you've had an easy schedule. That was easy to say through weeks one and two, but now after week three we face the New Orleans Saints who, if, let's see, if the Packers aren't the best because they've had a garbage schedule, the uh, 49ers are pretty banged up. I, I would have to assume it's the Seahawks and the, the Saints are the top two teams in the nfc right now either way we're not talking about a a bottom of the barrel team and the packers again scored in the 30s against the saints and so i poked around i said i wonder how we're doing here the packers so far have scored 122 points the packers in their history have never ever ever scored 122 points in three weeks never not even in the 2011 season where the packers offense was seen as the one of the most electrifying things ever kind of like the uh the the chiefs last year or whatever you know it, it was that level of offense it was it was an offense that was just unstoppable it didn't matter how bad the defense was because the offense was going to score squ- it was that this is better not only that this is currently the fourth highest point total in the first 3 weeks of the season ever the 1968 Dallas Cowboys scored 132 points the 2013 Denver Broncos scored 127 the 2015 Arizona Cardinals scored 126, and then the Green Bay Packers scored 122. Fourth highest in NFL history. If the Packers make it to 38 points against the Falcons, they'll be tied for the second highest in NFL history next week. The reason I say hi- second is because I don't think we can catch Denver, <laughs> who scored 179 points. That 23, th- 2013 Denver team was absolutely absurd. If we want to catch them, we have to score 57 points, which, if it's going to happen... Like, by any team, it's the Packers against the Falcons in Week 4. Number one offense against the number 32 defense. And Matt Lafleur at the helm, who refuses to let his foot off the gas. I'm just saying, it's not, it's not impossible, but I would be more than happy if they can reach 38 and tie the, uh, the 2000 St. Louis Rams. But just think about what I'm comparing this to. If we score 38 points and tie the 2000 St. Louis Rams, do you remember... I mean, maybe some of you were too young to remember. That was quite a team. We're talking Marshall Falk in his um, all-pro season. First team all-pro that year. 1,359 yards and 18 touchdowns. We're talking about Torrey Holt and Isaac Bruce, who are both pro bowlers. Torrey Holt had 1,600 yards. Isaac Bruce had 1,400 yards. Kurt Warner was also a pro bowler. This this is what we're what we're talking about. The 2015... Cardinals had Carson Palmer, um, Chris Johnson, and David Johnson. Pro Bowl Larry Fitzgerald getting 1,200 yards on top of John Brown getting 1,000 yards. They absolutely lit it up. The 2013 Denver Broncos team was number one in points and yards in 2013. That was their 13-3 year. First team All-Pro Peyton Manning was the quarterback. They had no Sean Moreno getting 1,000 yards on top of Demarius Thomas getting 1,400 yards, Eric Decker getting 1,200 yards. Julius Thomas, their Pro Bowl tight end, getting 700 yards. They had Wes Welker, who was way down the depth chart, getting another 700 yards. They had Sean Moreno, their running back, getting another 500 yards. It was just a dominant, dominant offense. That's the team, by the way, we have no chance of catching this. Well, I shouldn't say no chance. They had a huge week four, and that's how they did it. They also had a huge week five. Just to give you an idea of how good things can be, their first week they scored 49, then 41, then 37, kind of similar to what the Packers did, right? It goes down every week. First game in the 30s was in week three. Then they open it up against the Eagles, who were one of the worst defenses that year. And the Broncos scored 52 points. Just saying. I'm not saying at all, I'm just absolutely saying. And then the 68 Cowboys I'm not going to bother. Some of you might know these teams but uh, it's well beyond my time so it's not as uh, it's not as like wow we're compared to that because I I don't I have no idea. Don Meredith, Don Perkins, a lot of it was the Don year, the year of the Don. beyond all that, it's not just a matter of scoring a lot of points, which is a big thing. but if you look at past years including last year, a lot of the Packers victories were very narrow wins. Remember the whole thing where we led the Lions for exactly zero seconds all year, but went 2-0 and against them? Remember how every game felt like an absolute heart attack? And granted, these games do too, at least in the first quarter, first half, but they eventually pull away. And so if we look at, for example, their point differential, that is how many points we score compared to how many points they score, over three weeks, it's 37 points. On average, the Green Bay Packers are winning by almost two touchdowns per week. The last time the Packers had a point differential this high, Brett Favre was 32 years old and quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. That was in 2001. So they're not just scoring a lot of points. They're beating the living daylights out of teams. It's not like it's 49 to 47, in which case the point differential would be 2, so we're all clear. The point differential is 37. Now that's far from an NFL record, and it's not even necessarily the best in the NFL right now. The 49ers currently have a point differential of 41, and the Indianapolis Colts have a point differential of 39. But the Packers are still third. So again, it's not just the points, it's the magnitude of the wins. It's it's how disparate the difference is between the the Green Bay Packers and the teams we're going up against. And it is absolutely not as though this is the hardest schedule, the pa- or the easiest schedule the Packers have ever had. Just by virtue, one, one of the greatest parts about this start, it's not as though we went up against the Jets and say, I don't know, The Giants. The first two games, which are supposedly the really easy games, despite the fact that the Vikings have two top five wide receivers, but whatever, these are divisional opponents. In other words, we play these guys twice a year, every single year. You're telling me this is the worst Detroit Lions team the Packers have ever faced? The worst Minnesota Vikings team the Packers have ever faced? Do you know how bad these franchises are? Are you out of your mind? No, I'm sorry. This is not the easiest start the Packers had, and then, of course, you tack the Saints onto this, and that whole narrative is gone out the window. Finally, there's this little tidbit that Mike Renner put up. He must have better access to stats that I have because I couldn't replicate this. But on Twitter, Mike Renner, PFF underscore Mike, says, To put into context how insane the Packers' offense has been so far, here's how they stack up historically in points per drive. Pretty straightforward, but it's how many points on average a team scores whenever they touch the football. On offense, obviously. 3.73. Historically, that's the highest ever. There are only three teams in history, according to Mr. Mike, that are above three, which is a heck of a mark. That would be the uh, 2007 Patriots at 3.19 and the 2018 Kansas City Chiefs at 3.12. Now, the difference between the stats I gave you and the stat he's giving you is that these are presumably their uh, per-year numbers, meaning, you know, obviously there's a lot of crazy numbers early on that kind of flatten out as you go out throughout a year, which will probably happen to a lot of these Packers stats, but still, so far, compared to these stats historically, the Packers are well above any team in NFL history in terms of when they have the ball they're going to score, and again, just for an Aaron Rodgers-led Green Bay Packers team, That's pretty crazy. That doesn't even include, you know, a Brett Favre led team, a Bart Starr led team, Pat Mahomes team, Tom Brady team, Peyton Manning team, John Elway team. I mean, just on and on and on, right? Every great offense that just pops into your brain. So that's point number one. And I made the point last week, but I want to reiterate it because it's still a reality. It didn't change after week three against the Saints, the supposed first tough defense they're going to face this year, the real test, which, of course, they move that goalpost again. No, 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 never mind. And I told you that would happen. I told you the narrative would pop up. Drew Brees is washed, you know, the defense, blah, blah, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. And that certainly isn't going to change after we trounce the Falcons, right? The, the narrative is going to continue, but it doesn't matter. People coming up with excuses for the reality doesn't change the reality. People trying to explain away wrongly the reality doesn't change the reality. And the reality is what I'm trying to get you excited about. Because it's exciting. Of course, I don't know what's going to happen by the end of the year. This thing could come crashing down. Maybe Matt LaFleur and his little bag of tricks, somebody's going to expose him. Who knows what's going to happen? I don't know. But so far, pretty awesome. Allow me to elaborate as we move on to point number two. Again, it's a point I made after week two. It's also a point I made after week one. It's a point I'm going to continue to make after week three because as long as it's a real thing, it, you know, remains a real thing. It's not just a fluke. It's not just one week. It's not just two weeks against bad teams. It's now three weeks. And point number two is, this is a different Aaron Rodgers. Now, as I said in my article, I don't think that this is proof that, you know, the haters were wrong and Aaron Rodgers was elite all along and you guys were just wrong. No, no, no. There was absolutely a decline taking place. The question wasn't if it's happening, it's what in the world are we going to do to fix this and can it even be fixed? And as we talked about in the offseason, there's, there's reason to believe that Matt LaFleur could be the guy. I went through all the quarterbacks in this Shanahan style of system. We looked at Elway when Mike Shanahan went in there and retooled that team. And a guy who was seemingly declining suddenly had a massive boost and at his best year ever, in year two. You got guys like Matt Ryan that just tore it up. You had Jared Goff, who was a joke, and McVay went in there and suddenly became a good quarterback. Plenty of examples of not just firing off the offense, but getting quarterbacks to really become something special. And so again, we can play the narrative that, while well, if you look at it, the Vikings had no corners, the Lions had no corners, and then the uh, the Saints, well, I don't know what to say about that. Especially when the announcers couldn't say two sentences without saying the the name Jenkins and how elite he is and of course there's Marshawn Lattimore that everybody loves so they're generally known as a pretty good cornerback group again week three kind of hurt everybody's narrative but even outside of that it's not just that he's back to 2014 form 2013 form 2012 2011 whatever it's not just that it's that so far he's better I mentioned after week one, he was the highest-graded quarterback in the NFL. I don't know if I mentioned week two. He was also, again, the highest-graded quarterback in the NFL. Two weeks in a row, he was the number one quarterback on that week. Week three, he was not, but I think he was like sixth. Overall, through three weeks, Aaron Rodgers remains PFF's number one quarterback. And if you've been paying attention to what Russell Wilson's been doing, that's beyond impressive. Because the fact of the matter is, Russell Wilson is actually outperforming just about every quarterback in history through three weeks, which kind of foreshadows the next thing I'm about to tell you about Aaron Rodgers. This is the best three-week start, talking about Rodgers, for a quarterback, according to PFF, since Tom Brady in 2011. It is the third best start in the PFF era. That puts Russell Wilson basically at like fourth. If it wasn't for Aaron Rodgers, this would be a historic start for a quarterback uh, by Russell Wilson. Again, according to PFF. And most people wouldn't doubt that. In fact, every time somebody talks about Rodgers, everyone's like, have you seen Russell? Because again, it's the whole weird thing with, with the Packers and Aaron Rodgers and everybody's just kind of over it and done with it. And the new cool thing to do is to finally acknowledge how great Russell is, which by the way is long overdue and he's very deserving of that. On top of that, he does have more stats, right? He's He's got more touchdowns or and yards, I think. I don't know. And so you look at the stats, you look at some of the remarkable stuff he's done, and, and again, not going to dispute it at all. And Even if you think Russell's better than Aaron, it's not that big of a deal. The difference between the PFF grades is, is marginal. So if your preference is, is Russell, fine. That doesn't really change anything. I'm not going to fight you over it. They're both having elite seasons. My point is, can we please acknowledge Rogers is up there with Russell? Because nobody seems to want to do that. It's amazing, almost like the, the groaning and the... Mm, when people have to acknowledge how good the Packers have been. you are like, oh, Russell Wilson is so amazing. Have you seen it? And and the Kansas City Chiefs and the Baltimore Ravens. And, and I suppose we should mention the Packers. I mean, yeah, they're a pretty good start. Hey, you know, they're not some very good team. We'll have to see. I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's a good start. It's not bad. No! Historically amazing, best in the NFL, everybody else can pound sand. Better than the Seahawks. Better than the Chiefs. Better than the Ravens. Better than any Packers team we've ever seen. Fourth best start to an NFL football season ever, you whining, moaning morons. It's ridiculous. I'm not, I mean, I'm not even asking you to fall on your face and worship, but the fact that you barely want to mention them with other teams that are not as good right now is absurd. And as I've already mentioned, another one of my points in here, but uh, week one, his week one performance against the Vikings was Rogers' best game since week nine of 2010, his second best game ever. The other thing I want to point out, which maybe will upset some people, but it shouldn't. This is maybe Roger's worst group of receivers ever. Alan Lazard is doing great. I tend to think, and and this was a question that was posed by somebody, and the the answer doesn't matter. That's the main point here. But the question was raised: How much of Matt, Lef- or excuse me, Lazard's success is because of Matt Lafleur in this scheme? I tend to think it's quite a bit. We know Alan Lazard is not necessarily an athletic freak. Now, clearly, you can't just plug anybody into this system, and I'm not making that case, and, and everybody would be great. But it can be true that he is uniquely built for this offense, and that both things are true, that most receivers would not thrive in this offense, but Alan Lazard would also not thrive in most offenses outside of this one. Again, it doesn't matter. He's doing fine. But look at the fact that, essentially, Devontae Adams has been healthy for one game this year. He he was hurt two weeks ago against the Lions. He had 30 receiving yards in that game. We've only had a healthy, full-go Devontae Adams in week one against the Vikings. And so when I say this is arguably the worst group of receivers, I'm not necessarily saying by the end of the year we will have never seen something worse. It's possible we have. It's pretty unlikely though, considering the ridiculous great receivers he's had. Maybe you could say last year because it's more or less the same group but with a better Alan Lazard. However, still, I want to reiterate what I said a couple days ago. The leading receivers against the Saints were Alan Lazard, Robert Tanyan, Jay Sternberger. Lazard was the only guy with over 50 receiving yards. If you would have said, prior to this season, the Green Bay Packers are going to be without Devontae, MVS was going to be shut down, Aaron Jones was going to be shut down by the defense, and it was up to Alan Lazard, Robert Tanyan, and Jay Sternberger to pull this game off, zero human beings on planet Earth take the Packers to win this game. Zero. And rightly so. Which leads me to point number three, which I will get to after we finally take this break. Well, I've got some sad news to report. I'm actually currently not wearing my Iron Jaw hoodie because I figure I should probably wash it one of these days. With that said, yesterday was my first opportunity to be able to wear it outside in the cold. It was very, very cold out, at least as far as, you know, not being acclimated to it and being used to 80s. Um, But the temperature dropped extremely windy and uh the iron jock hoodie is all i had and i i gotta say it held up pretty well Now it's it's hard to tell when you're not like you'd want to put that one on and then swap out the other one to kind of really tell the genuine difference but i certainly can tell there was a difference between when i didn't have it on and i was freezing which really was kind of important because it's so light i kind of had this feeling like wind was just going to cut right through this and it was going to be like not wearing anything at all and that's absolutely not the case so it passed that test as well but I want to continue to encourage you to check out Ironjock Jock, I-R-O-N-J-O-C.com. They've got polos, vests, long-sleeve and short-sleeve workout shirts, sweatshirts, shorts, socks and underwear, running jackets, hoodies and pants. Every single piece of clothing that they have available for purchase has their proprietary Enduratech fabric, which is wicking and fast-drying, breathable, anti-static, and eliminates odor. How does it eliminate odor? because it's infused with silver ion. You can go to their website to check out a video that talks a little bit more about it, but the silver ion actually kills 99.9% of all bacteria and fungus caused by sweating. They also have an EnduraTech Plus fabric, which is on their long pants, shorts, hoodies, and running jackets. I was actually strangely kind of hoping it would rain yesterday. It did drizzle a little bit, so I, I can tell you that it passes the drizzle test, but I was kind of hoping it would like, maybe not downpour, but you know, really kind of put this thing to the test but EnduraTech Plus is water repellent and if I didn't say it cuz I don't remember the long pants shorts hoodies and running jacket have the EnduraTech Plus which is everything EnduraTech has but also water repellent Stay tuned in the Facebook group. We're going to be doing another Iron Jock giveaway. We're also going to be doing the uh, the social media post giveaway for an Iron Jock hoodie. Again, I'll have more information put in a video format for you, so make sure you are in the group, like Cheese and Packers, whatever it is. I'll get it up in all the groups and pages. Otherwise, please check out ironjock.com to see their amazing line of clothing. Follow them on Facebook. Like them on Twitter, at Iron Jock. Also, folks, please don't forget to check out mybookie.ag. The Packers, by the way, still holding strong at 7.5 points. I don't remember what the over-under was set at, but it's currently at 56.5. Again, I do what you want. Last thing I want to do is lose anybody money, but you're telling me these teams aren't going to get to 30 apiece? I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Packers' defense could tighten up. Maybe the Packers' offense falls off. I, You know, who knows? I think a legitimate question would be, what's more likely? The total is under 56, or one of these teams reaches 56, (laughs) because I'm wondering if one of them gets 56 by themselves, but you know, we'll just leave that hanging out there, but again, mybookie.ag, not only do they have some incredible um, betting opportunities on the Packers or any other team, but you can bet on any other sport that you could possibly think of, up to and including darts, chess, and cricket, You can bet on who the next pope is going to be. You can bet on uh, global warming. I mean, it's literally anything. They've also got live in-game betting. So if you're looking for something fun to do outside of uh, actually watching the Packers, you can bet on it right during the game. But whatever you do, please don't forget, when you sign up for your MyBookie account, make sure you use promo code OVERTIME. And what they're going to do is they're going to double your first deposit. I'm not positive if the overtime promotion is still going on. But go ahead and take a screen capture of that. Send it over to AdvertiseCast. Excuse me, overtime at AdvertiseCast.com. Again, they may have closed that. I'll have to get some uh, clarification on all that. But couldn't hurt to try. Otherwise, just make sure you check out MyBookie.ag. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. Matt LaFleur is a great offensive mind, and I've, I've already hammered this quite a bit this week, but I want to point something out that I keep forgetting to mention, and that is that Matt LaFleur currently is tied for the winningest head coach in NFL history. If he wins against the Atlanta Falcons, he currently holds that record. There's a couple of guys who have, who have coached like one or two games that are at 100%. You know, for whatever reason, somebody has to fill in, the coach gets ill, whatever, they come in, they win. I'm talking about coaches that have coached. At least a full season, and I think both of these coaches have coached two seasons, or at least, you know, Matt LaFleur's got one and a couple games. I'm sure most would say it's too small of a sample size, and that's fine, but again, it didn't take long for everybody to start praising Sean McVay. Where's the love for the winningest coach in NFL history? And by the way, the other winningest coach, I don't really want to look it up, but he's some guy from like the 50s or 60s. But I want to elaborate on that and just kind of remind everybody what exactly it is Matt LaFleur did. Because there have been some other coaches that have come in, and I remember when I looked up what would happen if if Matt LaFleur did win a Super Bowl, and it would be basically, I think, only one other coach had had taken over a team that had a losing record. Because some coaches come in, again, for whatever reason, they take over a team that essentially had just won a Super Bowl, or, you know, we're a really, really good team and for whatever reason the coach retires or they're just tired of this coach and they move on. Just kind of a weird situation. Coaches have taken over winning teams and gone back to the Super Bowl and then usually it's all downhill from there because it's not the coach. It's the fact that it's a ridiculously good roster. And eventually things kind of fall apart. This was not the case. You have to think back to how bad the Packers were in 2018 and 2019. Remember the Brett Hundley years. Remember in 2019 everybody thinking everything is going to be right back on track because the whole problem with the Brett Hundley years is nothing to do with the Packers. It's an elite team. The only problem is that we don't have Aaron Rodgers, and once we get him back, everything's going to be just fine, except it wasn't. Rodgers was not in sync with his receivers at all. The run game seemed to be working, but McCarthy refused to run the ball. The, The defense, with only a couple exceptions, got blown out basically every week. Ted Thompson was at the helm of a team. The guy had not drafted hardly any good players, with the exception of an an occasional blip like Kenny Clark, and the team just continued to erode, erode, erode. The offensive line was eroding, the wide receiver weapons, the, the tight ends, which never existed anyways, just kept getting worse. The defense, which used to have guys like Clay Matthews that were dominant, now have an aging Clay Matthews that was no longer dominant. Nick Perry was at the bottom of his game. Not in 2019. I think 2018 was his last year. Whatever, right? It's Everything was just completely imploding. This thing was headed for complete disaster. Absolute, total, and complete disaster. We didn't have a GM. We didn't have a coach. We didn't have a good offense. We didn't have a good defense. We had Aaron Rodgers, who was our only hope, and he couldn't drag this team anymore. In part because the team was just too heavy. It was too much dead weight. And in part because Rodgers wasn't exactly the same quarterback anymore. The odds of this thing getting turned around quickly were pretty slim, I don't know if we realize quite how bad this situation was and how dire it was. On top of that, the Packers go out and hire a guy, and everybody mocks them. Why? Because they hire a guy that's never done anything. He's been riding the coattails of guys like Kyle Shanahan, guys like Sean McVay. Right? Yeah, Matt Ryan looked good when he was the quarterback coach because Shanahan was the offensive coordinator. Well, he—he, he, you know, the Rams were real good once once he and McVay took over. He—he he wasn't doing anything as an offensive coordinator. He's not calling the plays McVay is. McVay's the guy. Remember in Washington when the entire coaching staff got fired except Sean McVay, who is under LaFleur? Shanahan was the offensive coordinator, LaFleur was the quarterback coach, which ranks higher than tight end coach, which is what Sean McVay was. They saw something of a very special McVay, kept him on board, fired everybody else. So McVay's the special one. Shanahan obviously is is an impressive mind. LaFleur hasn't proven anything. And then when he finally gets his shot, he goes over to Tennessee, and what happened? The Titans get worse. They go in 2018 to 27th in points, 25th in yards, one of the worst offenses in all of football. And this is who they hire. Terrible. I lay all that out just to show how drastic it was in 2019, and how absurd it is that nobody wants to give Sean McVay, or ha 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 ha, now I'm doing it. Nobody wants to give Matt LaFleur any credit, which by the way, what is it with all the, the two uppercase letter coaches? As I'm writing this article, I got McVeigh, LaFleur, and McCarthy. The heck is that? French and Irish are just obnoxious. You get one capital letter, man. Stop being greedy. And again, I want to reiterate, the 2019 team had its flaws. It really wasn't even a a, a McVay Shanahan Lafleur type offense. It was it was still very much a McCarthy style offense. It was a McCarthy style roster. It still looked clunky. It didn't really work. It worked well enough, but it still was just ugly looking. But yet they still went thirteen and three. And again, as people want to focus on the ugly, the fact of the matter is you're right. It was ugly. And this is a team that that was in complete collapse mode. How in the world did they go thirteen and three? I think any sane, rational-thinking human being should look at Matt LaFleur and say what he did is miraculous, because it is still not working. It is still not his scheme. It is still a Mike McCarthy offense, a Ted Thompson roster, a a a, a Mike McCarthy-style scheme with Aaron Rodgers at the helm still just kind of running what he does with a little bit of of LaFleur mixed in with all the motion and a couple jet sweeps that year and a few poorly executed halfback screens or whatever. There's a little bit of that but the fact that in one year after basically uh, years and years of abuse by a bunch of people that just were not doing a good job ted thompson mike mccarthy and all the coaches in between and in one year they go from 6-9 and 1 to 13 and 3 in 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 this nobody head coach's first year as a head coach with a roster that is falling apart and now in year 2 as he's as he's slowly revealing this offense they start the year 3-0, best offense the Green Bay Packers have ever had in history. Number one offense in football when you have teams like the Kansas City Chiefs, when you have teams like the Baltimore Ravens, when, when Russell Wilson is having the best year of his career, one of the best starts to a quarterback's season ever. Still, the Packers are ahead of all of them. And that leads me to point four, as I was slowly leaning into. They're just starting to unravel this. Point four officially is, they're just getting started. I mentioned how last year that really wasn't all that much of a Matt LaFleur-style scheme, largely because you have to teach it. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about a lot of this stuff is that it works kind of like Madden, where it's just a a pile of plays. And we're going to go from Mike McCarthy's plays to Matt LaFleur's plays, and just like in Madden, when you call the play, they execute. That's not true. They don't know how to do this stuff. There's a lot that goes down to timing, especially in a Matt LaFleur offense, and you can't just walk in here and say, okay, go run this play. They don't know how to do it. They don't know what they're looking for. They don't know what their keys are. They don't know how to interact with each other on these certain plays. They don't know what the reads are. If this guy's here, we do this. If this guy goes over there, we do this. And everybody along the offensive line needs to understand, as well as the quarterback, as well as the wide receiver. There's options on these different plays. Depending on what you see, you either go this way or you go that way. And what and the wide receiver and Aaron Rodgers need to be on the same page and understand and see the same things. You can't just call the play and make it work. It's deeper than that. And so again, you wonder why is it a Mike McCarthy-style offense and, and with a little bit of a, a hybrid Matt LaFleur flair to it. Because he's just slowly unraveling this thing. And he's already said as much. He said so this year, Matt LaFleur did that they're still just slowly unraveling this. And already, we know one thing about Lafleur and and the Shanahan style of of play is that the offensive line is incredibly important, especially in terms of, of run blocking, which is something that was very different than Mike McCarthy, who obviously cared a ton about pass blocking, didn't seem to emphasize run blocking at all. So far, according to ESPN, the Green Bay Packers have the number one pass blocking offensive line and the number one run blocking offensive line. You have... A Green Bay Packers, Mike McCarthy, Ted Thompson offensive line, which is dominant in pass blocking, that just learned from from a guy that emphasizes run blocking over and over and over and over again. And it's not as though they forgot how to pass block. They just learned how to run block from one of the best. And now they're dominant head-to-toe pass and run blocking. Thank you, Matt LaFleur. That's one of the things that has slowly evolved. But again, just remember, if this is what we can do with no Devontae, running at basically 60% of its full capabilities, right? In other words, Matt LaFleur wants to open this thing wide up. Open this wide open? Open this up wide up? What is the thing? Anyways, the question is, what does this offense look like if it's at 100%? There are things Matt LaFleur would love to do to punish defenses that he just feels we're not ready for yet. And again, if you want to know why some of these guys aren't on the field yet, it comes partially down to trust, but it also comes down to, look, we just got to the point where we can execute these things. I'm not going backwards to dumbing this offense down because we've got guys that I want on the field that don't know what they're doing. We want to go forward, not backwards. The question is, what happens at the end of the year when we're running wide open? What happens in 2020 when we fully grasp the full depth, breadth, width of this offensive system and its full capabilities? What happens then? Remember, Kyle Shanahan didn't even have his first winning season until year three. That's when he was able to open it up, right? He got his quarterback back, obviously the defense got a little bit better, but make no mistake, the reason they're still dominant, despite losing their defensive playmakers, they lost their quarterback, they're losing their starting running back, the reason they can still dominate is because these guys know how to run the system, and the system is what's destroying everybody. Now you can't, that's not, you can't do that forever. At some point you lose enough talent to where this thing just can't work anymore, but it is the system, it is the machine that's running in San Francisco at this point, not just really good football players. Which, by the way, as we look forward, is is something to be excited about with Jordan Love. And I'm talking way down the line, but this is the thing where we get Jordan Love to fully understand this and be able to operate within this. There's every reason to believe that if you can have a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo that can take this team to the Super Bowl, Jordan Love could take the team to the Super Bowl. I know he missed the target like three times in practice. Oh my goodness, he's terrible. We should never have drafted him. This is the worst thing in the world. Whatever. Three, four years from now, if Aaron Rodgers hangs up his cleats or the Packers move on or whatever, the one of the biggest reasons we can be excited about the future beyond Rodgers, whenever, okay, seven years from now, I don't care, is that you don't need an elite-style Aaron Rodgers to run the offense and to make it look really good. It just makes it that much better. Instead of having a team that happens to be dominant, you have a team that's the best offense in NFL history. And it's, it's so it's so funny and it's so remarkable because I've, I've alluded to this without wanting to say it because it seemed impossible, but I alluded to that. Talked about it in the offseason. We know that this style of offense can be really dominant, but what happens when you take a really dominant offense and plug in a Hall of Fame-style quarterback? It could be beyond amazing, and we're witnessing it. It's actually happening. Which I shouldn't be surprised by because it was kind of the same thing that happened in 2019 where you say, you know, best case scenario, this happens, but I mean, you know, what are the odds that they actually are? It's probably unlikely. But it happened. But there's more as far as the bullet point that they're just getting started. Remember, we drafted guys just for Matt LaFleur because this is still a Mike McCarthy style roster. We haven't really seen much of them yet, but that isn't because they're no good. That isn't because Matt LaFleur doesn't like them, doesn't want them. He does. Again. They're not ready, we're not going to go backwards, and um, at least in, in regard to A.J. Dillon, it's sort of, as I said, a Rashawn Gary thing where he's stuck behind some really impressive players. Jamal Williams is not only doing really well, but Aaron Jones is, is lighting the league on fire. He's just an unbelievably talented running back. But make absolutely no mistake, that the point of drafting A.J. Dillon is they want a workhorse back like Derrick Henry in Tennessee. And once he gets up to speed, they're going to lean on him. And if Derrick Henry helps us to get to what Matt LaFleur wants, if that helps us get to the 100% Matt LaFleur offense, look out. And I'm not talking about dumping Aaron Jones. I'm talking about putting things in their rightful place where where Mr. Derrick Henry 2.0, A.J. Dillon, is getting 20-plus carries a game and, and Aaron Jones is free to operate, fully healthy, fully fresh, to come out, you know, operating at... at, at what we kind of want he comes out in passing downs he's a receiver he's a blocker he also is still getting his 12 13 carries a game but you got your 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 pounder and your banger A.J. Dillon on a on a down-to-down basis getting his 18 20 25 carries whatever it is that Matt LaFleur feels like doing depending on who you're going up against right if it if it's sort of like the Saints or Vikings where we're just going to key in on your guy and we're only going to run the ball a few times, fine. We'll just put Aaron Jones out there because we're only going to carry it a few times anyways, and then we'll just light you up through the air. If we're going to dominate you on the ground, AJ, get out there, man. you got 25 carries coming. Congrats. Have fun. Feast, young man. But that's not all. We still have Josiah DeGuara, who I mentioned after we drafted him, is going to be a major part of this offense. And you saw week one, they're already getting him mixed in. The only reason he hasn't been out there is because of injury. And they're also still slowly acclimating him. And it's not going to help that Robert Tanyan really is kind of having a great year. Now, maybe it just has to do with the fact that, you know, similar to Alan Lazard and everything else, there's nobody else to lean on. And the system is working. And when you call the right plays, and Tanyan just happens to get open because it's a great play call and a great scheme, and you got a good enough quarterback to get the ball where it needs to go, Robert Tanyan's just good enough to run the route correctly and catch the pass. Maybe you can plug a lot of different guys in there and they can do what Tanyan's doing. But, you know, again, DeGuara is a big part of what the plan is for this offense. Once he comes back healthy, he's going to be getting more and more and more opportunities, and I genuinely believe he is going to be the focal point tight end of this offense. It's nothing against Tanya, and it's nothing against Jace, who I really hope does have a breakout, but remember, Jace is going to be the guy that they want maybe split out a little bit more. He's more of the wide receiver, tight end hybrid, whereas DeGuara is the in-line fullback deception tight end, which when when you're in a deception type offense, you are the focal point. You are a critical piece. Running backs and tight ends, in particular, are all about deception. And when you're a tight end in the slot, you know, not quite as much. But again, the point is, this is a banged-up offense with a mishmash offensive line that seems to be changing every week. We've got one real top-tier weapon in Devontae that has hardly played all year. Alan Lazard is breaking out. But then if we even want to take it a step further, what does happen when Matt LaFleur gets his first wide receiver? Maybe not first round, maybe not even second round, but what if we go out in the draft and actually draft one? And we have Alan Lazard and Devontae and, you know, this other guy. No offense to MVS, I'm not trying to push him out the door. I'm just saying, we haven't even attempted that yet. Which, by the way, the one wide receiver that we do know that the Packers wanted was Devin Duvernay. Devin Duvernay is doing just fine out there in the NFL. That time will come. They will look for a Matt Lafleur wide receiver when the time comes. They tried in this last draft, didn't quite work out, but that time will come. They're going to be drafting more offensive linemen for Matt LaFleur. Matt LaFleur is going to be here for a long time, and that is a great thing. It's really just getting started. All right, I got to pick up the pace, which is fine because um, the next step is the defense has been bad, dot, 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 so far. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I'm having fun talking about positive things, but clearly this is the one hindrance, and, and essentially. My point is, if there's anything getting in the way of a 2020 Super Bowl, it's the fact that the defense is off to a slow start. I talked about how, look, everybody's off to a slow start, so it's just a question of when the defense gets better, how much better is it going to get. But a couple of really negative things here. The one thing I really want to hone in on, I talked about two guys as prime regression candidates. And unfortunately, these were two key pieces last year, and that's Preston and Zedarius Smith. Preston, because his sack percentage was through the roof in other words, in terms of how many times he actually beat the guy in front of him and generated a pressure, was good, not great. It was fine, 12%, 13% something. So his ability to generate that many sacks again is really, really unlikely. Zedarius had a once-in-a-career kind of a season. And when you got guys like Khalil Mack that are only getting once, you know, seasons like that once, it's hard to believe that Zedarius is going to be able to replicate that. And so far, he hasn't been able to. But not only has he not so far been able to, to replicate it, and I think a lot of people are missing it, because he still has two sacks, and as far as stats go, that's fine. He still ranks fairly high in the one stat that we're aware of, which is sacks. And he had the, the strip for a, a fumble recovery, so we, we still are able to look at this as he's still dominant. We don't see him as much, but he's still probably really good. Remember what I've said about pressure percentage. 10% is the baseline. Anything less than 10% is, is bad. You're not a good pass rusher. At 10%, it's kind of acceptable, but not great. You get into 12, 13, that's good, right? You're 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 good at your job. Not the best in the NFL, and then you get up into 15, 16, 17, and that's that's like elite, top tier type stuff. So Darius right now is at 5%. There are 330-pound nose tackles that are doing better than 5% right now. This is horrifically bad. Now it's a small sample size, and it you know when when you've only done a certain amount of pressures. If he comes out and gets Uh, You know, one pressure against the Falcons right away—that probably jumps up to 10%. If he has two in that game, he'll probably be you know 12ish. I I don't know, but 5% is about as bad as you'll ever see for a pass rusher. So for Zedarius to go from 17%, which was basically number one in the NFL, to 5%, which is one of the worst in the NFL right now, is really concerning. Now, somebody had pointed out how he's he's playing a ton of nose tackle, and why is he doing all that? Again, I talked about that yesterday. I think where. I think it was just meant to be sort of a matchup. Maybe we should just keep him outside. Let's stop trying to be so cute with it. But this is is very concerning. Now, I don't expect him to end the season at 5%, but again, guys like Khalil, Von Miller, whatever, they might have down years, but a down year for Khalil is like 13%, 14%. You're never going to find these guys below 10% ever. If Zadarius wants to remain in that conversation, he needs to pick it up quickly. To put this further into context, do you remember Nick Perry after his contract, how bad he was? Do you remember in 2018 how he was just completely and totally useless? Like the worst pass rusher we had ever seen in our entire lives? He was at 7.7%, to put it into context. 7.7 in Nick Perry's worst year ever, in which we all said this is the worst pass rusher we've ever seen. 7.7. Zedarius is at 5.1. Again, it's early, but that's that scares me to death. But again, it's early. Everybody's bad. Defenses are gonna continue to get better as the season goes on, which probably if anything means the Packers offense is gonna start getting worse over time. The only reason they're putting up historical numbers is because defenses are historically bad right now. But but still it's not okay. And it needs to be better. But again, skipping right over that, if you want to see much more in depth, go check out the article on Fan to Fan Network, five things we learned about the Packers through three weeks. Um, but that brings us to defensive standouts, and I've, I've talked about quite a bit of this already. But the one of the benefits that we've had so far, as far as as having hope for the defense, is the fact that it hasn't quite been all bad. And really, if we just get Zedarius back on track, we we might be in pretty good shape. Um, obviously, Kenny Clark is going to be coming back, which is is hugely impactful. If Zadarius takes a step, there's also some other people that maybe. We can get excited about nobody less than Mr. Jair Alexander. Now we had talked about this a little bit, um, but I I elaborate a little bit in the article and I'll do so today. I had mentioned how last week he was graded as the number one corner in football. After week three, he is now the second highest graded corner in football, which is phenomenal. And most people, I think, including myself, when you hear that as well, it's a small sample size. I'm sure he's had stretches where he's a good corner. We'll have to see, you know, consistency is the biggest thing and three weeks isn't that much of a sample size, but that's not entirely true. Inconsistency was such a problem for Jair Alexander, he only had, his his longest streak of games in which PFF graded him as good was two, and he did it once. Weeks 15 and 16 last year were the only back-to-back games in which he played well. Only games in which he had two games in a row where PFF said he did well. We know he had historically bad games like giving up 200 yards in week five against Dallas, but again, so far this year, three weeks in a row he's graded as a good cornerback. One of those games he graded in the 90s. His lowest grade this year is a 71. That was week one, by the way, against the Vikings wide receivers who, as I mentioned, are graded, both of them are graded in the top five. Adam Thielen is one of the best wide receivers in football. The Vikings are a joke, I get it, but he's absolutely tearing it up. And if you remember, as I mentioned, in a lot of those times when Jair was getting beat by Thielen, that was tight coverage. It wasn't like he got blown out of the water. It wasn't like some of these Kevin King things where it's like he catches it, there's nobody there, and you're like, who's responsible for that? And then Kevin King comes flying into the screen and tackles a guy. and It's like, oh, it was Kevin, 18 yards away coming in to make the tackle. No, he was blanket coverage, but it was a perfect pinpoint pass to a guy that just was, you know, technically, I guess you could say, open, but really wasn't. In that game, by the way, he only allowed 66 yards and a touchdown, but also added an interception and a safety that completely flipped that game on its head. That was his worst game. The safety interception gave up 66 yards and a touchdown game. His most recent game, as I mentioned, only two targets. One of them was broken up and nearly picked. The other one was caught for negative two yards. And the only reason he was even caught is because it was a wide receiver screen. So it was behind the line of scrimmage. Jair went past the blocker and tackled the guy behind the line of scrimmage. That right now is one of the best young corners in football. We talked about it in 2019. A lot of people pointed him out as maybe being one of the best. And it was funny because I went back and looked at it to see he must have had a strong start last year because I think one of the guys at PFF or or somebody wrote an article about they think he's going to be the next great It was probably after week two he had a game in the 90s. The the difference between that and this is in those games he had a bad game, he had his 90 game, and he had a bad game. Again, remember, didn't have two good games in a row. So on both sides of that 90, that elite game, were games that PFF said were not that good. And still people were saying, I don't know, man, this guy could be special. So far that special has shined through three out of three times. So that is something to take refuge in. A couple other guys, obviously Kingsley Kiki, somebody we've been waiting for, hoping would break out. We know Petten likes him. It's a fifth-round pick, but still, we need somebody to step up outside of um, of Kenny Clark. Uh, One of the things I've constantly said about Kiki is despite the fact that he's built sort of like a pass rusher, and at the time we drafted him, we said, well, he can also play defensive end as a pass rusher and all that, he's been pretty adequate as a run defender and non-existent as a pass rusher. In 2019, in which he played every single game, he generated one pressure. It was a quarterback hit. One. The entire year. It took until just week two for him to generate another pressure. So in, in two weeks, he doubled his pressure total. And then, of course, in week three, he exploded and got three pressures. So more in one game that he had in his entire first career. Through three weeks, he had four pressures compared to one last year. And two of which, as you probably remember, were sacks. That right there is a massive jump. And when you do that two weeks in a row, something that you couldn't do at all last year, Something tells me this guy's taking a leap. And the biggest thing that I said he needed to do was pressure. He's decent against the run. That's cool. But he didn't come in here to be a a run defender, a nose tackle. He's like, what, 285 pounds? That's not why we drafted him. I mean, cool, you can play the run. Obviously, I would mentioned how that's what he did in college, too. But the expectation is he's going to become a better pass rusher. That was the biggest thing he needed to improve on, and he has. We'll see if that continues. The other being Rashawn Gary. We didn't see him as much last week because he was injured. But still, to this day despite the fact that he's only had 58 pass rush attempts with Zadarius clear over 100, he still leads the team in pressures. He basically didn't even play last week, and he still leads the team in pressures. His current pressure rate is at 12%, which again is good. It's fine. It's sufficient. If you'd have told me Rashawn is going to be at 12% this year, I'd be more than happy with that. Because that's a good pass rusher. It's not elite. We'd like better, but considering as much complaining as there's been, 12 is adequate. And especially considering Zedarius seems to be regressing. Preston is non-existent these last couple weeks. Getting Rashawn to step up would be huge, because at, at the very least, we at least have him. But again, I do expect Zadarius to, to continue to, to come through. And, and again, he's got two sacks. He's got a, a forced fumble. He, he's still coming up with those big plays. It's just a matter of we need more consistency from him, because he's not getting to the quarterback as often. Also, if you look at, for you know, if we really want to nitpick, you look at the Saints, for example. What, what, what are teams doing, number one? They're running the ball a lot which doesn't really impact pressure percentage because that doesn't count. But you look at the Saints getting the ball out really, really quickly. What are they doing? They're dumping it off and attacking our linebackers. So something else to consider if you really want to dig even deeper. Um, The other two standouts that are worth looking at are both linebackers which is a major sore spot for the packers but it's 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 a rare blip the first being undrafted free agent chris barnes which i know seems ridiculous because he's an undrafted free agent and he hasn't been out there that much and technically his grades have been going down every week but he hasn't had a bad game once in three weeks not once and again, everybody wants to chuckle, but the fact of the matter is if Chris Barnes was a first-round draft pick, everybody would be saying he's, that was a great pick, he's going to be a great player. The only reason nobody wants to pay attention is because he was an undrafted free agent. The fact of the matter is he's the second-highest-graded linebacker in the entire 2020 class right now. The only reason he's not being hailed as the next great Luke Keekley is because, again, he was an undrafted free agent. If Isaiah Simmons was doing what he was doing, everybody would be saying he's the next Luke Keekley. Unfortunately, Isaiah Simmons is playing like absolute putrid garbage right now, so nobody's saying that. He's got 11 tackles, six of which are stops. Again, those are tackles that are negative plays for the offense, and he's only allowed 19 yards through the air thus far. Again, limited snaps because they keep rotating this as Patton tries to figure out who to put out, when to put him out, who's the top guy, who's doing what. It's just a complete cluster right now, but hopefully they hone in on it, and so far, Chris Barnes has been a bit of a standout. Not perfect. By any stretch, none of these linebackers are are perfect, but there may be something there. The other, surprisingly but excitingly, is Oren Burks. If you've been listening, you know I've not been super kind to Oren Burks. Most Packer fans want to give him some, some slack and say, well, when he's healthy, which is my least favorite saying of all time, it's up there with, that's fire and carry the G. This stupid keyboard does not work. The simple fact of the matter is that he's just been flat out bad since forever. He has been very injured over his first two years, but it doesn't matter. He's had plenty of time out on the field. He's never done anything slightly positive. Week three against the Saints, however, was by far his best game. Again, snaps are limited, but eight of his 13 snaps were in coverage, which is obviously where you feel like Burks would be kind of, if he's good at anything, you hope that coverage would be where he's good because he's an athletic guy. That's why we drafted him. So most of the time he was out there was in passing situations. Eight of his 13 were in coverage. He was not targeted even once. Now, you could just say that's by chance, but again, the PFF is not going to give you a great coverage grade if you're doing a terrible job and they just don't happen to throw at you. They're actually watching and grading, so it's beyond the stats. And it's also on a day in which the Saints seem to be exclusively throwing passes to guys that are standing near our linebackers because our linebackers are garbage. However, when Burks goes out there, not once did they throw at him. Could it possibly be because he did a good job in coverage? To put a finer point on that, Burks graded out 11th in coverage out of 106 linebackers it's i mean it's one game but it's one game we've never seen before so let's let's hope that burks is is kind of coming around here so anyways that's all i got for you again the articles out there it pretty much just reiterates what i said there might be a couple points i i glimmered over or whatever the word would be but i gotta get going you folks have yourselves a fantastic i believe it's thursday please remember to share the podcast with your friends or invite them to the group or do both Otherwise, I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.